Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. We're going to be joined today by Fleming Weissness, who's a biologist and extension specialist for the Danish Beekeepers Association. He'll be talking about how he identifies the needs of his commercial beekeepers and what he does to address those needs. In our five-minute management, we're going to talk about qualities of good apiaries. What makes a location a good apiary location? And we'll finish today's episode with our question and answer segment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. I'm excited, Amy, because today we're interviewing a colleague and friend of mine. He's joining us all the way from Europe, where he is a specialist, where he works with and for the Danish Beekeepers Association. I'm talking about Fleming Weissness, who's a biologist and extension specialist. Fleming, it is our pleasure to host you on Two Bees in a Podcast. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very excited in this Corona time to really talk and meet some colleagues again. So I'm very happy to be part of this program. Yeah, funny when I was thinking about some of the meetings that I've been missing over the time, like Coloss and others, I was thinking, you know, a lot of times when I go to Europe, Fleming's always there and it's just good to see him and hang around him. And it's, and we, you know, our listeners may not know, but every time we get on the podcast, we actually spend a little bit of time together off the air before we get on. So it was good to catch up with you and hear all about what you've been up to. And now I'm, t- I'm excited to be able to share your work with beekeepers uh, in Denmark. I think one of the coolest things about what you do is that you are completely funded through the Danish Beekeepers Association. You get funding for your research, which funds your position, but you work directly for the beekeepers. You know, here in the States, you know, extension specialists, biologists, et cetera, often work for the universities or the federal government, but you work directly with and for the beekeepers. And I think that that is an amazing, an amazing position that you have. So what I want to start with our listeners is I want you to just tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your connection to your relationship with beekeepers? How long have you been beekeeping? How did your position come about in the first place? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually very happy that it, you invited me because I was thinking about my situation. Do you know, in June, I have 30 years anniversary at the Beekeeper Association. So I got employed wow. 30 wow. years yeah. ago on on this position. And it was really when I finished my my biology study at that time, there was a position and there was really not a lot of positions for biologists at that time. So I made an agreement with my wife. It was really like that. The first of us who is getting a job, we will move to that place. And then I got the, the job in the Beekeeper Association. And it was really kind of, okay, I take the job in the Beekeeper Association and then I will move forward. And, and, and just that I have been there now for 30 years is kind of showing me that I have had a great time and great excitement and lots of very, very nice uh, experiences meeting people all over the world and 
great projects and so on. So I really love to be there and I will, they have to kick me out. Uh, I'm not leaving by myself. <laughs> well, Fleming, how do you have a, a background in beekeeping before you got there or did you just get oh, hired yeah. by the association and learn it? Oh yeah, yeah, course? yeah. So first of all, I was, I was actually doing a pollination thesis at that my master was about pollination. It was about wild bees and, and some special flowers in some meadows. And this was a great time, you know, in the old days where, we got educated as biologists. We used two years on our field testing. I mean, today it's kind of six months or five months or something like that. So we really went out in the field and we had our plots and there we did all our observation on the wild insects that were visiting those flowers. And we used two windows to write our thesis at that time. So it was really fun and it was really, we really had the time. So it was kind of not what I would say, Ross true. So I'm actually originally focused on wild bees and pollination originally and then we had this during our study one day we i made a mistake because there i saw an advertisement in the local newspaper saying hey would you like to do something very exciting with your life become a beekeeper and then we went to the beginner's course for beekeeping at that time and it was really kind of you know we got kind of dragged into hospitality, friendship, and, and we were young at that time, so they just loved us. So they were very polite to us and we got very good friends. And I mean, we went to the to the school apiary once a week. We had all the talks during the winter. And I remember once there was one of the commercial beekeepers and he said to me, gee, I have to frame or wire 2000 frames during the weekend. And you know how beginners are at that time? Maybe, may we come and help you? So we went to that beekeeper <laughs> and we wired 2,000 frames. And I still remember this as what an experience. I mean, because he was talking, he was serving cakes and, and everything. So we got all this excitement and all these great stories and all that experience from him. So so we got dragged into it. And I, what I usually say, if you survive your beginner life, the first two years, you, you should expect to be beekeeper the rest of your life. That's really good. I think I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it sounds like you're doing a great job there if you've been there for 30 years and they've still kept you around. Yeah, you, you could say, uh, <laughs> I mean, there are, there are pros and cons in this, in this system because I'm evaluated every day from my people that are employing me. I mean, they have a general assembly, they have a, uh, they have a board and there, I mean, they could say, okay, we're not, we're not happy with you. But we are so close to the beekeepers and they call us and they say, you should do this and you should do this. And why don't you do that? And why do we have this problem? So really the aim of my job is really to try to produce projects that are kind of improving the conditions for the beekeepers. What I'm trying to be is to be in between the scientists and the beekeepers. And I try to connect the science and the scientists in the beekeepers because it's not always that the beekeepers really do understand what's going on there and why they're doing those projects and then i'm able to tell them this makes sense maybe you don't have a gain about this right now but on the longer term it's important to do this and this science and then i also but that's i mean jamie when we and you and i were drinking coffee probably i have told you why don't you do that and couldn't you not i mean you should at your lab try to do this and this and this. So I really try to do lobby work to the universities and to the scientists and try to get them to be as applied as possible. Sure. Uh, I, yeah, I yeah, definitely understand. 
Yeah, Fleming, that's so great. I'm, I'm sorry for speaking over you, Amy. It's just oh, okay. it's just such an inspirational story because Fleming, you're spot on. If you think about like my position here at the University of Florida, you know, we're supposed to help beekeepers. That's great. That's good. But, you know, we also have to publish papers and get grants and teach yeah. students yeah. and do yeah. this yeah. and that and the other. And so it's like, you know, the University of Florida is who employs me. In your mm-hmm. case, you work directly for the beekeepers. And what a model, what a model where, where the beekeepers come to you with issues and then you directly go address it. And I I think that that's just a wonderful testimony to the work that you've done for the beekeepers in Denmark all of this time. But you could also say that I I, I don't do not have this publication on my shoulder. I mean that I have to make publications. I have to make publications for the beekeepers. And that also means that sometimes we are making what I call more simple field testing out there. And Mm -hmm. we do sometimes, and I have to admit we did sometimes make too fast conclusions on what we are doing. But we really want to get our knowledge to the beekeepers as fast as possible. But never be too proud to not admit the year after that maybe we were too fast. But that's, that's what the beekeeper they want. And that's what we want to do as well. So... So that's, that's the way we work. So we make what I call very practical field testing out there. And, and I, used to, I, I, used, I used to say we work a lot with Varroa and I was employed mainly to work with Varroa and Varroa diseases. But since I'm in an association, it's kind of, you know, today we will pack 2000 envelopes. Who can help? <laughs> I haven't done that ever, but it's, it's more an example. But what we, we kind of used to do when, when a new product, a new Varroa product came up, we got that product and then we tried to test it in a very simple way. Point one, does that product kill a beekeeper? Point two, does it kill the bees? Point three, does it kill the mites? And point four, will the beekeeper actually accept this from an economical point of view? I mean, will they adapt to it? And, and therefore, we also use the beekeepers a lot. We listen to them. And if five of the beekeepers, they tell me, Fleming, we are not making heat treatment in our beekeeping because this will not function. And where should we get the electricity in our apiary that's five kilometers away from, from a plug or something like that? So we really appreciate and really listen to the beekeepers on their opinions as well. So you could really say that when, when we work with Varroa and Varroa strategies, is also a very empirical strategies that we have because we try to involve the beekeepers where they say pros and cons out there when they're working. And the short thing is actually, can I get the beekeepers to do this? Sure. And if they say, and if they say no, then we move on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we try to find a different way. Yeah. So Fleming, I actually, I did my master's degree in extension education and I right. love programming and collaboration and networking and just doing very practical studies, you know, something that's applicable to the beekeepers. And you had kind of mentioned needs assessment, right? So that's kind of the first part of understanding the needs of the beekeeper and then mm. being able to balance that with what the scientists are actually researching. And so yeah. our job is to tie that together, right? Mm-hmm. To make it practical for beekeepers. Mm-hmm. Now, another part of program planning and program development is identifying challenges. So identifying challenges that the beekeepers have as a whole, you know, sometimes we do listen to individual beekeepers, but we like to, you know, look at the bigger picture. How many beekeepers are this affecting? How many colonies is this affecting? And so forth. So what do you see as a big issue or different challenges for the beekeepers, um, you know, with your Danish beekeepers, of course, but also on a worldwide level? It's really fun sometimes that when, when I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm traveling all over the world and I, 
as Jamie said, maybe we talked about that before, is actually that I always try to travel a few days more. So if you have a, a weekend conference, I always try to stay two or three days longer and make appointment with beekeepers just to kind of be in contact with them, talking with them, listen to their problems, feeling, kicking boxes and, and being together with them. And it really turns out that the problems are more or less, I mean, universal all over the world. I very often see it. So so right now I'm, I'm a co-author in an article where they write, Varroa is probably the biggest problem within beekeeping. And I always wonder why they write properly. I mean, Barua is the biggest problem that we have in modern beekeeping. It's, I mean, I was employed 30 years ago to solve that problem and I'm still in business and I still did not solve it. We made lots of good solutions and good ideas and strategies and, 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 and so on and so on. But we get new beekeepers and we get beekeepers, they forget what to do, how to do it. And it, I really talk about Varroa, it's kind of going in a wave. So we have low winter losses. Then the beekeepers said, okay, then maybe we should skip a treatment or something like that. And and then the next year they said, yeah, it was great. And low losses still, and we skip it. And then certainly the losses, they start increasing. And suddenly we have, I would say, major losses. When, when we talk about major losses in Denmark, it's 20% of the colonies that we lost. And then suddenly they get focused again. And then suddenly next year they, they follow the strategies. They really try to kind of do the very best that they can. And then they get down and then they kind of, you know, fall back and relax and do less and less. And then we have, so the raw treatment is really going into waves with the, with the success. I can see it on the winter losses that we have from year to year. Uh, it's really, it is really a wave. And that one I would really like to solve. So Varroa, I regard Varroa as, as the biggest problem. Then I see another thing that's really at the moment is the competition between, between honeybees and wild bees. This discussion that we have kind of worldwide out there. And it's especially very intense in Denmark at the moment. And then I see the honey fraud. Honey fraud. I mean, you have laboratories in China and Asia that you can call them and you, you can tell them this. You should produce a honey for me that can pass this and this test. And then they set the price for it. And then the honey is coming, cheap honey. The price is, is unbelievably low. You're not able to kind of produce a decent product to that price. And then they come to the local market and it kind of outcompete, I could say, the expensive Danish honey. I'm, I'm sure it's the same in the, in the US as well. So, And then I see the last problem is actually that beekeepers are not good at using modern technology. It's, it's really, I, I still claim that we are on on a stone age level. Do you know what a stone age level is? I put a stone on, on the lid. I put a stone on the lid and if I put if it's if I put it upside down or something like that or one side or the other side, then the queen is missing or maybe I should check something or that's really <laughs> what beekeepers are doing. They, oh. they just move the stones. Fleming, that's how we keep records at the lab. At I was about to say, we have that <laughs> right here. Yeah, yeah. Actually, but, but, we're, just, we're just now moving to a monitoring uh, software, but you just made fun okay. of us, Fleming. But yeah, perfect. Okay. That's but, a perfect but, example. But, but, but it works. It works. I have to say it works. But you guys do not kind of collect experiences over time. Yep. I mean, you're yep. not able to. I mean, I have this great story in 1994. I did produce 120 kilo per colony in my hives at that year. I just had 10 hives and I produced 1.2 tons of honey. And then the way that you react as beekeeper, you say, now I'm totally educated. I have the right queens. I have 
the right way to do it. And the next year I produced 25 kilo per colony. And then by the way, I got American fowl brood in my colonies as well that year. And if you ask me today, why did you have, why did you harvest so much honey at that time? I'm not able to give you the answer because I did not make any notes. And if I made notes at that time on paper, they disappeared. So I had a big success once and I'm not really kind of capable of, you know, put together the information and how should I kind of act in the future on my beekeeping. So it's really trial and error very often by beekeepers. And especially the ones that have very few colonies, I mean, they don't remember how they did last year. You very often see beekeepers kind of looking down into the boxes and thinking, what did I do last year? And they don't remember. I mean, commercial beekeepers, I do remember because they did it 10,000 times every weekend or something like that. But having two colonies or three colonies, it's really, they're not taking those things together. Fleming, it's very refreshing to talk to you. I think one of the biggest struggles that we have in academia is trying to address beekeepers' need or needs directly. And there always seems to be a disconnect between what scientists think is the, be- are the best things to do and what beekeepers think are the best things to do. And it, and it's created division and lots of problems over the years. But I, I really like your approach. I remember I first met you when I was a, yeah, either a student or a postdoc at the University of Georgia. I forget. But you came over from Denmark because small high beetles were in the U.S. Yeah. and you and a contingency of beekeepers wanted to see it firsthand. And you just related a story that I remember about you every time there's an international conference that idea that you go two days earlier or stay two days later so that you can actually work with beekeepers in that region to hear their testimonies and what they struggle with. I think you've demonstrated over and over again, an awareness of, of how to connect with commercial beekeepers and find out ways to address their needs. And so, you know, I really, I really want to expand on this idea, this idea of visiting with beekeepers and talking to beekeepers, you know, when they communicate to you what they need, how do you determine it? You know, one of the struggles we have, for example, here in our lab is we, we might have one really noisy beekeeper contacting us all the time, demanding yeah. that we do yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. But if you survey beekeepers, you can see that 80% don't care about that at all. They care mm. about this. Mm. So yeah. how do you prioritize beekeepers needs? How do you address them? You could really say that I have a mentor group around me, which are a group of maybe five very skilled beekeepers in Denmark. It's green breeders, commercial beekeepers. I also have a special mentor and we talk in the telephone twice a day and kind of, you know, discussing things and, you know, what, what do you think about this? And did you hear that? And did you meet him? And But it is really, if there is a big problem somewhere and we have what you could call a loud, wouldn't call it a screaming one, but a loud <laughs> talking beekeeper, go to his place, visit him see that the problem is something else. Everything is one big mess. Colonies are small. Equipment doesn't fit together. And then have a talk with him. And and this is really what we will work with within the next years because we have a project right now that we call 10% winter losses. So we make a questionnaire and then we ask everybody, how many colonies did you have before winter and after winter? And then we do approach all beekeepers that have higher losses than 10%. We give them a questionnaire more. We ask closer in, especially to the road treatment and so on and so on. And then we talk with them in the telephone. And all the time, it turns out, lack of treatment. So this is really the way to visit them. Have a big group of beekeepers that you approach, that you visit, that you meet, talk to them and listen to them. And yeah, it's not always possible to kind of fulfill all their wishes because very often it's very individual demands that they have. But I mean, you have a good feeling on, at least in my position, what's going on out there and what the main problem is. And we also have those big conferences or 
I mean, in Denmark is not a big one, but it's 500 participants are coming and there and be the last one going to bed. Thank you. You're my new best. mentor. Yeah, yeah, I love it. The best way to get the secrets out of them, uh, really. <laughs> now <laughs> everyone knows your secrets, your though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm also getting older, so it's not getting so late anymore. So you you're usually the first one to bed, Fleming. You don't last. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm definitely not the first one. That's for sure. <laughs> because I normally I'm the one having the key, so somebody has to you know shut up the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fleming, how many? So you said there's 500. Is that how how many beekeepers there are or how many commercial beekeepers yeah so again I, I mean the composition of Danish beekeeping is exactly the same as all over so we are about right now it's the, the, the number is racing but we are maybe 6,500 beekeepers in a country with okay. five and a half million people population I think what's important to know is that Denmark is a farming country so if you look on on the map 66% of Denmark is farming I mean it's, it's owned by farmers that are growing something or they have animals on there so it's quite a, a big area we have 10% forest let's say we have 10% cities and roads and, and so on so there's really not a lot left for wild nature in our country but that's really what the beekeeping is about is actually to give a service to those farmers and doing the pollination and so on and and the farmers are growing pretty good things so so it's it's not so bad to be beekeeper in the country so we have we have approximately 90 to 92 percent are hobby beekeepers means less than 10 colonies then we maybe have let's say five six seven percent that are sideliners and then we have those one to two percent that could be 100 it could be 150 commercial beekeepers that are really they're making a living out of that. It's their full-time job that they're doing. And the situation right now in Denmark is actually that the commercial beekeepers are under big pressure because of this competition of what I call strange honey coming from other countries. And, and Denmark is also a very simple country because over the years it has kind of crystallized out that we today only have one filling company. That means that the beekeepers only have one place to sell the honey. And, and that means that in earlier time, they actually went there just on big barrels. They, they delivered it. They got a pretty good price. And then certainly now this honey market is broken down. We had four years of very, very low honey harvest, which means that that filling company was also selling the cheap honey. And because our customers in the shops were not able to get Danish honey, they started eating this imported honey. And, and, you know, I mean, it's not that bad. And the Danish honey became more expensive and more expensive. So the, the price span between those two products became too big at the end. So really the customer, they, they jumped over to foreign honey. And then we got two years with, I would say, just average honey harvest. And then I had this beekeeper going to this uh, filling company and said, I have 25 tons of honey. And the answer were, but we're not buying your honey. Mm -hmm. Because we already on storage have honey for the next two years. Because the consumption, I mean, out in the big stores were so low that they didn't need anything more. It's still like that in Denmark, the direct sale, small shops, markets, and so on is, is actually doing very well. So the, the, the commercial beekeepers in Denmark, they have problems and the bank is knocking on the door asking them, when do you pay the money that we lent you? And I I am very afraid of or concerned about that the structure of Danish beekeeping within the next year will kind of change so that the commercial ones, they stop 
did you hear that I said now we have problems to supply the farmers with pollination because that's really the ones, the commercial ones that are doing that and that we will get more sideliners into our structure more and more, which means I have, I mean, I have a full-time job. I have 100 colonies, but I sell my honey my, from with my own label directly from the door on the local markets and so on. So I'm very concerned about the uh, commercial beekeepers in Denmark right at the moment. And I'm very, very concerned about the pollination because, you know, we are living in Europe. So where should the farmers get the pollination service from? Yeah, we have Germany just around the corner where we have big commercial beekeepers and they have the equipment, they have the big trucks, they have everything. So they're ready to drive up and put colonies to clover pollination in Denmark. And I mean, just to be honest, we do not want to import or have this traffic of foreign colonies into the country. I mean, diseases and everything else is, is of concern. So so this is kind of the situation of, um, of Danish beekeeping at the moment is a little bit sad, I have to say. That is really sad. So you think that basically there are going to be less commercial beekeepers in the long term and more of the sideliners. So everyone oh, kind sure. of takes a small piece of that, yeah. that yeah. puzzle yeah. and kind of fits into that world. Yeah. 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 I could definitely see that happening. Um, you know, with extension and with your position, you know, what we try to do is put a lot of different programs together for our beekeepers, right? So there's always the business side of everything. There's the marketing side of things. There's the pest and disease, you know, education. And of course that looks different with backyard mm -hmm. sideliners and commercial mm -hmm. beekeepers. So mm -hmm. how, how do you juggle all of that? What kind of programs do you hold for your beekeepers? Yeah, right now, I mean, now we talked about this, selling the honey. So we really started to put up some marketing workshops. We got really some external money for that. And we try to kind of teach people how to make marketing, how to use social media, uh, how to make label, how to make your own brand. And we, it, this is really from the beginning. I mean, they are not used to make this direct sale. So we teach them and they also kind of get what I call personal consulting where we where where we talk with them we try to make some papers and writing that's that's your customers it's there they're there like we have a guy he's living in there in a summer house or tourist area and he just have to put up the honey at the road and then he will mm -hmm. sell i mean 20,000 jars of honey and then you could take other ones they're living out in nowhere and there's a car coming every second day so that's they need to kind of approach other ways of selling honey the other thing is also that we try to kind of really focusing on the good size of honey, try to get younger generations to start eating honey. The competition on sweets is enormous. Um, so we really have this very, very big marketing project that's really actually running over the next two or three years. Then we have this winter loss, we call it 10% winter loss project, where we, as I already told, try to analyze what is happening, actually try to really much more personally to advise the beekeepers. And then we have a project. Another project is that, I mean, we don't have a lab like you guys have, but what we have put up now is actually, we call, I call it the mini lab. And this is a mini lab where we can make the most, I mean, we can analyze honeys for HMF, for, for enzymes, uh, water content and other things as well. And we also kind of make what I call a very simple pondal analysis. It's not like, I mean, it's not like on the certified institutes where they, you know, count 500 pollen grains and put the name on here. We just take the sample and then we look into it and then we can tell them this is a summer honey. It's, I mean, it's put together from lots of different sources, but we can also tell them this is mainly a, a clover honey. And what we do is is actually and, and we can also analyze for the different types of sugars so will this become a liquid honey or will this be a crystallized honey i have to say that the crystallized honey is the big thing in our country but 
Liquid honey is getting more and more popular because people are kind of traveling in Southern Europe and so on. But because we have so many rape fields, brassicaceas and so on, our honey will always tend to crystallize. And by the way, in the, at the Apimondia Congress in, uh, in Turkey, we actually did win the World Beekeeping Award for the best crystallized honey in the world. So we do know how to do those things. Did you notice I said we? It was not me. It was Yeah, I need to there. taste some of that. I'm, <laughs> You'll I don't take know credit. I've never had a jar for yeah, all these yeah. years I've known you and I've never had any <laughs> I bring one next time. Yeah, yeah. So, so this, is, this is kind of those products that we're doing right at the moment. Then we are very focused on the competition between wild insects and, and honeybees, which, which is a big concern by, by the beekeepers. So we try to really be active on being you know, uh, proactive. So what we right now do is we're giving certificates for companies that kind of plant for the bees. You could get a, a certificate for just having a garden and planting for the bees there as well. We, we really give it to, to cemeteries. We give it to golf courses. We give it to forests. Uh, we give it to everything kind of, to kind of raise the awareness uh, out there that we really have to change the landscape because it is a farming country. And monoculture is really good when you want to have a big harvest. But I mean, we do have one month in the summer where there's really nothing out there. When the rape doesn't flower anymore, then we have to wait kind of, I would say, three weeks for something new. So, so our bees are sometimes starving during the summer. That's really strange. So, so we really try to encourage and, and promote the government and so on to focus much more on make Denmark flowering much more. And it seems though that we are on the right way there, but we're really kind of competing with, I call it the biodiversity people, because they're not so happy with beekeepers, because they think that we do outcompete the wild bees, which there's really no really proof for, but that's, that's how they feel. Like they kind of regard us as, as on the same level as highly polluting pig farmers. It's funny to me that that's a problem for you guys in Denmark, because, you know, honeybees are native. Here in the yeah. U.S., we mm. have the same we have the same problem here in the U.S. Mm. Mm. But you know, the argument is all always starts with, well, honeybees aren't native, therefore uh, they're doing all these terrible things. But in uh, in Europe, uh, they're native, so it seems mm. like you'd have a much easier argument. <laughs> but yeah, but but you're totally right. But they they say they say now, yeah, that we know that they're native, but they are not naturalized anymore because they would die if it would not have been a farmer, a beekeeper taking care of them treating them and so on and and this is really the discussion but i i really do not understand i mean you guys have had the honeybees in the u.s for a relatively long time now and when the an invasive species and when is it's it's a naturalized species or original species in the country i've used that same argument you know they've yeah. been here 450 years and so yeah. it's, yeah. it's like at what yeah. point at what what point are they just part of what we have here so yeah and and for me also this is the the biodiversity and i totally agree on that we should work on the biodiversity but I mean, in Denmark, it would be like that if we would not have humans, farmers that kind of, you know, were farming the countryside. And it was really in the old days that put sheep out on the heather and the, and those sheep, the heather, who wants to eat heather flowers or heather. So those sheep, they were really on the, on the edge of starving themselves. So they started to eat that. And then they kind of opened up the ground and the, the trees disappeared and then we got this space for wild bees and so on so it's really kind of biodiversity is is also it's a picture from a certain time of history where humans really did interfere otherwise if we wouldn't do that denmark would just be a boring forest all over 
I mean, remove the people. <laughs> I mean, everybody talks about biodiversity and we need to have as many species as possible. Yeah, I really love that. But, you know, species, and that's the other thing that we see in our project, certainly now we start to finding species that has not been seen for for 100 years or something like that because it's become fashion to be a wild bee person. And, and we are getting more and more aware of it as well. So now people start looking for those types of bees or species out there. And if you take Norway in Oslo, you, they have the highest density of, of species there. And why do they have that? Because that's where the university is. And the students, you know, they don't want to go too far away from, uh, from the university. So they kind of, you know, it's, it's so well surveyed all over in, in the city of Oslo. Well, Fleming, there's so many different things we could talk to you about. I really like this idea that, you know, that your position came up from beekeepers. And ever since then, for 30 years, you've been Mm -hmm. listening to beekeepers and trying to address their needs. I mean, I listened to you talk about when Amy just asked you, what kind of programs do you have for beekeepers? You mentioned marketing, winter losses, Mm -hmm. honey analyses, this, this idea of wild bees versus managed honeybees. I mean, these are all things that our beekeepers here in the U.S. are facing even today. So, so our struggles tend to be universal. You know what beekeepers are facing in Denmark tend to be and I think the beauty of what you've outlined for us is you've, you've outlined a very successful relationship that you as an, a biologist and extension specialist have directly with beekeepers. And in many ways, a lot of us who, who are more on the science side are, are very envious of what you have and all the work that you've done on behalf of your beekeepers. So I'm sure your beekeepers know how lucky they are to have you. Don't forget the beer, Jamie. That's right. I, I, that seems to play an important role. I love that quote. Grab a beer and be the last one to bed. And that's how you get to know what people yeah. what people really yeah. need. Uh, yeah. to help with. Otherwise, I mean, don't leave, uh, don't leave the meeting. Otherwise, they start talking about you. So don't leave the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, well, Fleming, it's been great having you on this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to join us. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. It was so nice talking about beekeeping again. I'm sitting here at my private home and, you know, just waiting for this corona to kind of disappear and open up the world again so that we can start visiting each other again. I agree, Fleming. Everybody, that was Fleming Weissness, who's a biologist and extension specialist for the Danish Beekeepers Association in Denmark. Thank you for joining us for this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. questions or comments don't forget to like and follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at uf honeybee lab all right it's a five minute management five minute management jamie i'm gonna try to be a little bit more fair because i know that in the last the previous episode you went over but it was because i started the timer too early yeah you're not fair to me you always <laughs> include your question and our general banter in my time limit that is that's just not fair okay so i'm gonna ask the question and then or i'm just gonna name the topic and then i'll push start or you can say on your mark get set go like okay. everybody else in the world does. No, I'm just That's kidding. fine. So today we're going to be talking about the qualities of good apiary locations. On your mark, get set, go. You totally did that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, I wrote a document on this one as well. Maybe the listeners are tired of hearing me say this. So we're going to make sure and link this document in the show notes. And in this document, I outlined 20 different things that you should look for in a good apiary location. I'm going to just mention them. You could look at the document in the show notes for more advice. Number one. 
There should be copious amounts of quality pollen and quality nectar sources nearby. If you don't know if that's the case, keeping bees there a year or two will tell you that's the case. You can always ask other beekeepers in the area. There should be a clean source of water nearby. They need water and you don't want them to show up where you don't want them to show up. So give them the water they need. They should be established away from areas where people and animals frequent. So they should be places that people won't go a lot. Number four, they should not be visible to vandals. When people see bees, they like to do things to them, shoot at them, throw rocks at them. Some people cow tip, other people hive tip, and you don't want them to hive tip. <laughs> Number five, apiaries must be easily accessible. You shouldn't have to climb a mountain or drive 50 miles through the woods to get there. So accessibility is good. Number six, it's always good to have a written agreement when locating apiaries on other people's property. You don't roll apiaries, number seven, that reside in low areas. They'd be prone to flooding or keep cool, moist air around them. That's not good. So keep them out of low areas. It's nice to have them in areas that have a lot of sun, right? Good sunshine, wake them up in the morning. Mm -hmm. So, But you don't want to be in full sun because you don't want them to have to work all the time to keep themselves cool. Number nine, you want a spot that doesn't promote high disease and pest pressures. Again, out of low-lying areas that can promote fungal growth or things like that. You really want to be uh, away from other people's colonies. Number 10, you want areas where the flying bees will be encouraged to fly at head level. I know this sounds stupid, but you don't want bees to come out uh, in an apiary location and fly low for a long period of time because that mm -hmm. might take them through your neighbor's backyard. Some people I've done push, that before. Yeah, exactly. Some people <laughs> will put their colonies up against bushes or shrubbery that forces them to get up and above head level quickly. Number 11, you want an apiary site that's away from areas that are treated regularly with pesticides. You don't want your bees exposed to that a lot. Number 12, avoid locating apiaries in areas prone to frequent high gusts of wind. So if you're in an area like that, you might put some wind breaks in the area. Number 13, you don't want them established in a flood zone. Number 14, they should be protected from bears or other vertebrate pests if they are nearby. You want to be able to do that. We have bears in our area. So if you're going to locate an apiary site, you either don't want bears in the area or you're going to have to put up a bear fence. Number 15, they should be easy to maintain. An area you can clean easily or if a tree falls on your colonies like has happened to mine before, you want to be able to deal with that easily. You want the site to be free of other colony debris. That's number 16. You want to be able to, to take out the dead and keep out comb and things like that. 17, whenever possible, don't site them in areas that are prone to high-risk natural phenomenon. For example, high snow drifts or places of tremendous drought, or you get lots of fires in the area, as an example. You want to keep them out of those types of areas. 18. If you have multiple apiary sites, you want to make sure and maintain a distance between them so the resources won't be depleted for anyone. Number 19, you want to make sure your apiary sites meet all requirements set forth by local, regional, and state laws. And number 20 is just for fun. You want your apiary site to be pretty. You just want it to be a place you want to go and work your bees. For more information, check out the document link. Amy, how is my time? You have 51 seconds no to go. No way. I feel Congratulations. like Congratulations. Yeah, I no. know. I was getting a little anxious too, but I guess I guess you did it. <laughs> well, well, I will say again and again and again and again, 
I just told you what these qualities of a good apiary site are. Go to that document and look at it for more information about each one of those qualities. There's a lot there in that document. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. All right, Jamie, we've got three questions here, and I'm not even quite sure how to ask these questions. We talked a little bit behind the scenes, and I told you to stop. Ask me everything that you want to know about this on air. So here we are on air. I can't wait to see how you deal with this. So the first question is, is tanging bee swarms a real thing? And I, as I was reading the question, I'm like, what is tanging? And you started responding, but I still didn't understand what you were telling me. What is tanging? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I've actually never heard it called that, but, but what it's, what it is, is there's an old belief that when a colony swarms and you see it happening, you can go grab a pot and beat on the bottom of a pot and the swarm will start following you to where you want it to land. So you'll what? beat that pot, 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 and you'll go <laughs> to the tree limb and you'll pot it there and the, and the swarm will land there. And it's funny, I've, no one's ever asked me that question before. I feel like I've been saying that a lot on recent podcasts, but yeah. I was on, I happened to be on, I know that these podcasts are timeless, so it's hard to put a date on it, but I happened to be speaking to a bee club last night using Zoom and someone was talking about this very thing. So now two days in a row, I get this question. That's so strange. Yeah. And it's funny, Amy, if you look at some of the old swarm control methods or swarm capturing methods, some of the schematics is very common to see old cartoons of people beating pots with bees following them. And so that's kind of what's happening. (laughs) So yeah. So, so back in the day, people did do that. And some people today even still do it. And the idea is that you're leading a swarm to a place where you want to be able to capture it. So is there any science behind it? I have never in my life read a manuscript where there's been a research project that shows that this actually works. And the comment that I happened to make last night to the bee club is anytime I've considered this, I wonder who is leading who in this scenario, right? Imagine you're, imagine you're standing under a swarm and you're beating a pot. Is the swarm following you or are you following it? And both of you just end up at the same spot and you congratulate yourself on how good of a job you did getting the bees to that spot. And so my guess is, is that there's nothing to it. The beauty of science is that, you know, I can be proven wrong the moment someone studies this topic, but until then, I think it's a fun thing to think about, but now I know that a lot of people are going to tell me they do it and it works and that's great. I'm happy for you. And I look forward to seeing the research on it. So there you go, Amy. That's what what it is. We are recording this in early March and this is swarm season. And I'm just, I'm really hoping that I look outside and our beekeeper is starting to do that. That's what I'm going to say. We could always get some (laughs) undergraduates in the backyard there and see if they'll stand out there and beat pots continuously until the... And I, I, I can't imagine what the rest of our colleagues would think that's about. That's what us, I was but. thinking about. The department's going to think that there's some weird drum circle happening. Well, with the swarm. Amy, the department probably already thinks the B team's <laughs> weird anyway. So it's just what it is. Well, we probably are, but that's okay. All right. Well, that's so funny that I just learned something new. Thank you for that. Um, so the second question that we have, does Varroa affect value? added products. So, you know, does Varroa or having Varroa in your colony affect the quality of your honey or wax or, you know, anything else that we use? So Amy, not in any way that I can think of. So that's the short, quick answer. There are some things such as small high beetles that do impact the quality of our high products. You know, small high beetles can cause 
the honey to ferment. They can get into pollen for those people who do pollen trap collections. They can get into that and lay eggs and you can get just problems there. They can impact your wax potentially. But Varroa are not known to do anything at all to any of the hive products that we produce. The only way that they can affect value-added hive products is that they can reduce the likelihood that your colony is going to be able to produce those products. But it doesn't impact the quality of those products once they are produced. That's good to know. Cool. All right. So the third question we have, we've talked a lot about um, honey moisture in the past, but we always kind of talk about honey fermenting. And so this question is, is the opposite. So how do you manage honey moisture in dry climates? Yeah. So that's that you're right. We have been getting a lot of honey moisture questions recently. I've gotten them here on the podcast also in my Q&A for the American Bee Journal, just just a lot of different places. And it's always from the perspective that my honey's too moist. Well, this one comes in from, well, my honey's too dry. What in the world am I supposed to do about that? Well, when honey's too moist, you can dry it off. But when honey's too dry, you don't really add water to solve that problem. So it's a very interesting conundrum. What a lot of commercial beekeepers will do if they have dry honey, and just let me set the stage for what dry honey is and why it's a problem. Honey is best extracted, bottled, and sold between about 15.5% water and 18.5% water. Mm-hmm. That's the, the sweet spot, so to speak. Ha-ha. If it's over 18.5% water, it's wet and it's prone to fermentation. If it's below 15.5% water, it's dry and it's prone to granulation. So if it's too dry, a lot of commercial beekeepers and honey packers will simply mix that dry honey with honey that's too wet and bring them both down into that sweet spot. If you're producing dry honey, but you also produce wet honey at a different time of year, you could just mix the two. You blend them to try to get them into that right moisture content. Okay. Outside of that, I don't know anyone who adds water or any type of moisture to dry honey. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is rather than trying to fix it and bring up the moisture content is to use a slightly different strategy. Let me give you some pointers. Number one, I like to keep dry honey in the settling tank as long as possible. In other words, I don't bottle honey that is prone to granulation well in advance of the consumer wanting it. Because if I bottle it well in the advance, now I have a lot of little bottles of honey that are all granulated and I now have to reliquify that. People take the lid off and put it in the microwave or they sit it in a pot of warm water and bring that water almost to a boil. In all of these cases, you have to take off the lid of the jar, otherwise it might explode. But people will basically melt the sugar crystals in these circumstances. And if you have to do that with a lot of honey jars, then it's going to drive you berserkos. So what I like to do is leave it in the settling tank as long as possible because it's easier to liquefy in that settling tank than it is in a a bunch of jars. They make these band heaters, these little strips of things that you, it's almost like a belt that goes around the settling tank, almost like the settling tank's wearing a belt and that belt will heat up and that will reliquify your honey, and then you can bottle it on demand. And so that's how I handle dry honey. Again, the commercial beekeepers and the packers, they'll just simply mix it with honey that's that's a little bit on the wet side. Um, but, but if you're going to do it as a hobbyist beekeeper, I recommend just keeping it in whatever you use it as, as a settling tank and only bottling on demand. And incidentally, when I grew up keeping bees, my honey tended to be 
quite dry. And some of the equipment manufacturers will produce a little sticker that you can put on the back of your jar of honey. And it's basically granulation advice. If your honey, you know, honey that is too mm-hmm. dry is prone to granulation. If mm-hmm. this jar of honey granulates, take off the lid and do X, Y, and Z. That gives you a little bit of freedom to know, hey, you know, this honey's probably going to granulate while this person's sitting it in their kitchen, but now they've got an instruction on how to reverse that. We're talking about that heating belt. And I feel like I just, I feel like I just purchased one. You Um, in fact did because we just bought one for the lab. So, well, and and we bought it, we bought it for the reason of the, it was cold outside and we didn't want the feed to freeze. So I guess there are multiple uses for that, right? They're, they're actually sold Amy for the purpose of reliquifying honey. But what we did is just what you said, we needed to feed some bees and it was cold and we keep um, our bee feeding barrels on the back of a truck. And it was, the pump was having to work extra hard to pump the sugar water into the feeder jars. So we bought these band heater, these belt heaters to warm up slightly those barrels of sugar water so that we could pump it easier, but you're right. Spot on. Very cool. All right. Well, now, you know, now I'm really excited for our listeners to show me their best tanging video um, <laughs> on our social media pages. Please do. So, Please put a video yeah, I look, I look forward to that. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Lauren Goldstein, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.